The Over the Bonnet podcast is brought to you by Gympie Central Medical Centre. Bepositive.com.au, Gympie Foam and Rubber and Luscious Leaks. In this episode, I get to chat with a man who is best known as a member of the Chaser Productions, CNNNNN, and the Chaser's War on Everything. Charles Firth has made a career of pushing the boundaries of comedy satire and is now continuing to stay ahead of the media curve, targeting a new generation of consumers going completely online with chaser.com.au. Over the Bonnet with Mark Peepers. (laughs) Well, at least the guests are good. You'll never know what happens with the conversation when it's over the bonnet. (laughs) You're kidding me, aren't you? Charles Firth, thanks for joining us over the bonnet. Yeah, nice to see you, Mark. You're a comedian of fairly high standing in the community. What kicked it all off? No, no, I'd have to stop you there. You've obviously done your research wrong. Um, (laughs) I'm I'm a comedian of incredibly low standing. (laughs) Let's get that quite clear. (laughs) Have you always been funny? Um, I don't know whether always, but I certainly, by about year five, I started being the guy who, um, would sit up the back of the class and make people laugh. I don't know why. My parents divorced in that year and I think it was, uh, it was a way of self-soothing or something like that. Because one of the things that I've realized as I go through life is, I'm not actually, I don't think I'm trying to necessarily impress anyone else with my jokes. I think I'm just doing it mainly to make myself laugh. That's what all my friends always say is that I'm like, I, of all the people who laugh at, at my jokes, it's it's me who always laughs the, the longest. So I think I just enjoy telling myself jokes. So so what makes um, you laugh? Oh, uh, bathos. I think that, that, I mean, but it doesn't everyone just love a bit of bathos, which is, uh, bathos is of course, um, the, the sort of, it's sort of black comedy. It's when, when something terribly sad happens and, um, um, uh, and, and then expectations are often fulfilled in that place. So it's just the meanest form of comedy (laughs) really (laughs) is what I, (laughs) When when horrible things happen to people, um, no, no, and and I think I mean what I really enjoy is political satire, of course, but I think that's um, that's because it combines my two passions, which is I, I love the news and I love you know how the world works and how power works and everything, and taking the piss out of all the powerful people and and be, playing that sort of role of. Um, you know, just, yeah, I think you can actually, it, the good thing about being funny is it gives you the privileged position of being able to say a lot more than people who uh, the professionals can, can say, um, you know, and, and we have this whole idea that people who comment on politics should have a carrot up their ass. And the fact that you, we sit there and go, oh, no, we, we don't have to have a carrot up our ass while we're <laughs> commenting on stuff. Just it allows us to reach a much wider audience. I mean, a lot of people I know actually get a lot of their news from the Chaser website, which is appalling to think. Like especially the younger people, they they sort of go, "Oh yeah, I found out about that. How did you find out about that? Oh, I read it on the Chaser." And it's like, "No, don't believe that. <laughs> you idiots." Because you do That's enjoy true. just 
satire on the website and nothing yeah, nothing yeah. is off limits. Yeah, nothing's off limits. No no one is sacred. That's really important. I mean, one of the problems we're facing at the moment is so the libs are terrible, right, of course. And um but so is the Labour Party. But they're so non existent. I mean, I think partly because the Labour Party's stepped back and just gone, let's let this shit show go on and we'll just stand by the side while we watch on. But but you're sort of going, I wish the Labour Party, you know, because, you know, on Facebook and things, people always sort of go, why don't you pay out the Labour Party more? And you're just going, well, we would if they were in power. And also we would if they opened their mouth. Like literally the only jokes we've made about Anthony Albanese in the last year have been about how non-existent he is. Has he done the right uh, thing though by stepping back and just letting them fall over themselves, the Liberal Party? Well, it depends what you mean by right thing, doesn't it? Like probably from a craven political perspective, yeah, like absolutely from a comms perspective, absolutely, it's the right thing to do. Just let, you know, if if someone's killing themselves on stage, don't interrupt them. <laughs> but from a from a leadership perspective, is it morally the right thing to do to sort of absent yourself from the political debate? Because he when... did just go to ground once he became leader. Yeah, he just went to ground. But also, I think he, I think he was really arrogant. I think actually. I think the reason why he went to ground is because he thought that everyone knew who he was. His first speech, I don't know whether you remember, but when he got the leadership, he actually said, oh, I, I, I don't need to introduce myself because everyone knows me. And you're going, that is so not true, mate. Like, I don't know. Like, I, I can name, like, all my friends who are into politics can name you. Anyone else, like my sister-in-law or my brother-in-law, or you know, like there's, Tons of people I know who would just go, Anthony Albanese who? Like, is that a type of shoe? Like, I don't know. Like, is, is that a footballer? Like, like, people don't know who some obscure shadow minister is. And then when they become opposition leader, they need to introduce themselves. But I think he's so existed in that sort of Canberra space for so long. <laughs> that he thinks everyone, because everyone in in the halls of Parliament House go, oh, I know who that guy is. He sort of thinks the world knows who he is. So um, I think that was a huge error, him not sort of at least making a bit of a show and a dance about it. Um, but I think I think in hindsight you go, yeah, well played. <laughs> like, let, let, let Scott Morrison stuff it up for himself. Um, yeah, what a what a brilliant mastermind, what a masterstroke. But do you think the spin doctors should be getting a little more aggressive, though, on the Labor side of the bench? Well, I think, yeah, and I think you're starting to see that now. Like, I actually know the chief of staff there um, a little bit. His name's Tim Guttrell, and he did the Rudd election. He was the national secretary of the Labor Party when Rudd got elected, and his whole thing would be about just holding your nerve, that, you know... Electoral politics is not, you know, anything other than making the, you know, your opponent stuff up and winning elections on the day. So you have to time it all, and that's why, you know, in the last few days he started, you know, Anthony Albanese started, sort of poking his head up and making some announcements, and it's like, oh, is there, <laughs> is there an election in six months? Oh, right, okay, yeah. So. <laughs> 
Because do you think that though by saying nothing, that's their best chance of getting in? See, I, I don't know. I, I mean, if you actually look at, say, history um, rather than, you know, comm strategists from the Labor Party who all convince themselves that they know what they're doing. If you look at history, <laughs> the, Labor, the Labor Party has never gotten in um, with somebody who has a small target strategy. Everyone thinks that that's true, but it's not. If you look at it, um, you know, I mean, you can go back to Whitlam. Whitlam came in off the back of, you know, a huge social movement and had a huge agenda. Hawke was similarly a large figure who sort of had a huge agenda in terms of transforming and modernising the Australian economy. Um, Rudd, similarly, you know, I mean, maybe you could say, you know, he... Well, he didn't try to play a small target because Kim Beasley had made that mistake in about 15 billion elections before that. <laughs> and uh, yeah, the ironic small target strategy for Mr. Kim Beasley, <laughs> the largest target you've ever seen in politics. But, um, but you know, Kevin Rudd um, came on the back of, you know, Your Rights at Work, which was actually a huge social movement, like the largest union mobilisation in 30 years. So... It's sort of like, it's just wrong to say, like you actually, like I reckon people in this country vote Liberal by default and they need a reason to vote Labor. And and that's the reason why, you know, this small target strategy doesn't work. You actually have to, I mean, I actually have a whole idea about what Labor Party, like, because I hate the Labor Party's current, um, have you seen what they're trying to run? They're trying to run this, you know, where for you, Scott Morrison is against you, right? That's their latest sort of thought Spin. bubble. Right. And they, <laughs> they're going to clearly run into the election. Now, I've talked to Labor Party people and said, do you think that's a good idea? Do you, that sounds like a terrible sort of framework. And they oh, no, no, it, it's worked in other places. Like it worked in America, it worked in, in the UK. You know, it's a really good progressive frame, you know, blah, blah, blah. And you're just going, well, hang on. Does the does America or Britain have compulsory voting? And you go, no, like they don't. You go, so who is it convincing? It's convincing people who are already or like it, the politics of envy, the politics of wherefore you you're they're against you, you know, blah blah blah, is is entirely based on the politics of envy, which is which doesn't appeal to swinging voters. So the one one type of person who in Australian politics you've got to convince. Uh, uh, the swinging voters are going to go, that's a terrible frame. Like, uh, anyway, so... Would you make a good politician? Would you like to run? I would love to run. I want to run for my own party. I want the, the chaser party. And I, I think it should just be entirely only satirical, <laughs> only satirical um, promises. That that would be my, my goal. It's just like literally... You know, <laughs> we just fuck shit up with the slogan. <laughs> <laughs> Go and say and do nothing and get across yeah. the line doing that. Yeah. yeah, no, no, it should it would be the, the huge target strategy. <laughs> where we, literally, we just go, we're going to tax the mining companies. We're going to tax, you know, all the evil big corporations. We're going to tax Facebook and Google out of existence. Um <laughs> And we'll have tons of money and we'll, we'll give it to, we'll spread it all around. We'll just give it to everyone. It'd be great. When did you first get involved and interested in politics? 
I I actually I was in the Labor Party um, for a few years, much to my shame, when I was at uni. It well, actually when I was at high school. Well, I think I've always been interested in politics. I used to listen to right wing shock jocks as my um, going to bed noise from about the age of twelve. <laughs> I would listen to late night right wing shock jocks as my hobby. Who was um, your favourite? I loved. I. I I actually, I was, I thought that they were what they were saying was great. <laughs> like I was, so, I was such a mixed up little child. It was the YouTube of of the late nineteen eighties, I suppose. It was Brian Wilshere and all those people. But um, no, and then and then um, we uh, and then I joined the Labor Party for a few years in in when I was a teenager in Young Labor. And actually, Anthony Albanese was like picked me up from my home and he, he drove me to my first young labor um party meeting back in it would have been 1980 no 1989 it would have been yeah wow. and that's when and labor and young labor back then for all its faults um actually was a really good little organization because we did things like we brought out Crowded House from New Zealand and we held a fundraiser. And it just did this, you know, PC little theatre. It would have been like three or 400 of us. Um, and we, But we got Crowded House there and they were, they were the act. It was like this pretty good sort of <laughs> concert to put on as a Young Labor fundraiser. Um, what else did we do? There was We brought out Billy Bragg. Wow. Um, or it, yeah, you know, like he was – he obviously had come out for something else, but we managed to get him. And I remember – we went to dinner with Vinnie B- Billy Bragg after he'd done a concert for us. He was sitting there, you know, Chinese, going, this is incredible. <laughs> he was telling stories about overthrowing Thatcher and protesting against Thatcher. So that was, that was a lot of fun. Um, and then, but then by the time I sort of, like it was, it, it was when, I, I, by the time, it, like by about second year in university, I realised just how, terrible all those sorts of student politicians were and then and that's actually when i sort of really got into student media and and actually and we we had a we had control of the student newspaper and that's when we did our first real chaser style newspaper so we would just mock all these all the student politicians all the student politicians who are now i might say all the people who run Australia and everything like that. Like, and, and the thing is, you realise, oh, they haven't changed at all. They're actually they're the same dickwads that they were. You know, and morons. Like, the only people who get involved in student politics are the people who can't have sex and, you know, can't get sex. And so they join student <laughs> politics sort of thing. You just go, oh, that's why you're all such creepy, creepy morons. You know, that's, that's who got involved in student politics. So... But you were still doing it back in your Sydney grammar days. You were um, into comedy back then and running the student newspaper back then. Yeah, that's right. Well, me and Dom and Chaz, all of whom ended up in the Chaser, um, yeah, we we had, there was a publication, our school newspaper was called Tiger. And Dom edited it, and I used to write various columns for it. And it was great. We won an award from the Daily Telegraph for it. We went to go in and and um, see how the Daily Telegraph was. And then they actually ran one of our papers in the Daily Telegraph. Wow. Um, you know, it, like it was, it was four pages of it. But they didn't put in any of 
like our funny stuff and it was like hang on like the, the whole reason because we we it was a really successful publication we used to because it was a sort of scam in a way because we'd put out these huge magazines that were like 90 pages long on a4 paper and we'd say to the teacher oh can you um photocopy you know 600 copies of these and but we and so it, it would have cost thousands of dollars to photocopy these <laughs> terrible uh, these wonderful student newspapers but then we just sold them for 20 cents and pocketed the money and you're just going there was no like like it was just completely uneconomic thing but it was it was fun it, it was just a wonderful time and it was very popular like we would constantly sell out a uh, thing it's good days good times yes well, because you were saying that you were sort of at the back of the back of the classroom in in the early days, still making kids mm. laugh. What was the sort of comedy that you were using in those days? What made them laugh, and what made you laugh back then? Well, it, it's always been satire. <clears throat> like I remember, we we had this ancient history class, and there was this guy in the class who never, ever um, put in his essays on time. Right, and we were learning about ancient Greece, right, which is already ripe for comedy because it's all about, you know, like they're all gay, you know, and you know you're going to an all boys school and you just, you know, like it's very, you know, ribald humour, right? But so anyway, I mean, and not that there's any funny about being gay, but when you're a fourteen-year-old boy, you sort of, um, and they're all in in the Theban sacred band. You, I don't know whether you remember, but. So the whole thing is that Sparta was was very very um, dominant as a military force, but then these people in the Thebe, in Thebes, which was nearby, came up with this innovation, which is that they they made their sticks a lot longer, and and they all and they were all lovers. Like you could only get into the army if you <laughs> you and your lover also got into the army, and they'd stand there. One of them would hold a protective shield. And the other one would hold this incredibly long pike that would stick out. And, you know, and they made their pikes a bit longer than everyone else's. And it was, I mean, just imagine the, that was so ripe for comedy because it's like, oh, no one can penetrate the Theban sacred band with their long pikes. Anyway, point is, uh, we had this kid who never put his essay in on time. So we wrote him an essay with all this sort of double entendre in the essay um and so on the day it was due it was like the for the term it was the term paper um we said to scott hey mate have you handed in your essay and it's like no i don't have an essay and he said why don't you hand in this essay we've written one for you <laughs> and we handed and he handed it in and then we asked the teacher hey did scott um did it scott hand in an essay this time that's amazing like he never hands his essay in on top you want to do you want to just read it? <laughs> and so she started reading it out to the class and uh, it was my finest hour because it was sort of, it was satire, but done on a, the world's nerdiest scale. So it's good. What was the reaction? It was great. And in actual fact, I found out years later that that, that essay had been photocopied and like it was the way that the teachers had been introducing that course thereafter because it was it was a sort of funny introduction to you know military strategy in in ancient greece <laughs>
Do you think that more humour should be used in education? Oh, absolutely. And look, I I, I mean, I think it it has actually improved since our day because even just we did this uh, sketch, series of sketches last year called War on 2020. And the number of teachers who've emailed us um, saying, oh, we're using this sketch in class. And I'm going, copyright. (laughs) No, no. Um, (laughs) And, you know, that sketch or whatever. Um, I think that the, because of the internet, like teachers on the uh, teachers are on the lookout for, you know, accessible material that sort of helps kids sort of thing. So I, I imagine it's being used more. But but it, it is absolutely true. My mum was a teacher for a while, and she always just used to say, like, if ever her class got, she taught history, if ever her class got too rowdy. She would just lower her voice and start talking about the sex lives of royals, you know, like, <laughs> and, 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 you know, and, and it's the same thing, sex and comedy, just immediately, like if you're, you know, of a certain age, it's just like, you just completely, it gets through to you. So, yeah, it's good. Did you enjoy your private school education? Yeah, um, I did. I, I went in, my parents weren't rich, um, but... Uh, my dad had had a terrible experience um, at his public school, and when when I got to the and I was a bit of a fragile little being, um, <laughs> or, or my parents thought I was fragile. I don't think I was fragile, but um, so they sort of went, "Oh well, we'll we'll put you into this school." So I I ended it going, "Well, I've got to get a hundred percent value for money out of this," and because it was the most resourced. I mean, it's just extraordinary. The result. I mean, it's so unfair. But my attitude was, well, I'm here. Might as well use them. My attitude is everyone should have an education as good as mine rather than, you know, like, <laughs> um, you know, like nobody should have an education like that. And, um, and we had things like, I mean, it was just incredible. We had this AV department, right, where the school, they wired up the whole school to have certain channels so you had you know eight channels and and the av department would play instead of having vcrs in every room you'd just ring up the you know the av department and they'd play the video centrally and that means that several classrooms could all show the same thing because you just switch it to that channel in the school it's like an internal tv network so we went that is great. There's a TV network that we can take over at lunchtimes and run our own TV show. And so we set up this thing called SGS News, and I was the host, and we would and we would do a sort of satirical news show at lunchtimes. And we used to, every time it was on, the teachers would say, because you weren't supposed to be inside at, at um, lunchtimes, but they'd make an exception for whenever SGS News was on. And it would clear the playground. We claimed ratings of 100%. <laughs> and it was great because you, you just... I, I realised later in life, though, that because uh, I went to the funeral of one of my friends who was involved in it and he died um, early last year because of the bushfires, actually. He, he um, had an asthma attack in that um, terrible bushfires at the beginning of last year. And... Um, but but I realised that actually, I mean, he was my comic foil in a way. He was the straight man. But the, the amount of bullying I put him through, in some, like on on screen, live in front of the whole school, like it was the bully pulpit, like nothing else. So it's always made me sort of empathise with 
why Alan Jones and Steve Price and all those cockheads <laughs> are such cockheads. Because you go, the power is so great. <laughs> Do you think they're losing their power, though, with the way things are changing, like podcasts? Do you think that uh, these shock jocks are losing their reign? I don't know whether... I, I mean, I think media is transforming, right? So, I mean, I, I think one of the misnomers in this country is that we think of News Corp as being a media organisation when a more <laughs> accurate thing to say would be is that it's a political organisation that masquerades as a media organisation. So, you know, I think what I think is really interesting is that Sky News, for example, because its, its actual mission is not to make money but to peddle influence and to peddle really quite extreme right-wing ideas, it is adapting much quicker than conventional media companies. Like, you know, Channel 7, Channel 9, they're not really on YouTube. They're not really where audiences are. Like, it's not like people aren't consuming media. media. People are consuming more media than ever, but they're just not consuming it down the conventional pipes, right? And, and But Sky News is the biggest YouTuber in Australia, like it, like it has the most YouTube subscribers of any YouTuber in Australia. Wow. So they they and same with their Instagram and their Facebook. Their Facebook videos are often the most shared Facebook videos each week. They're sort of actually not losing their power at all. And even though it, like everyone looks at the TV ratings of Sky News and goes, oh well, who cares? What a joke. <laughs> You're going actually no people are, people are getting their you know, insidiously getting their news from Sky News anyway, because, and these awful people who just lie, but, you know, um, because they're sort of finding them in the places that they're actually browsing media. Where do you get your news from? Oh, Sky News. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> it's, the, it's, well, it's the top, it's the top satirical <laughs> news service in the country. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, they're satire. Some of those characters, such comedy characters. Alan Jones, what a what a great comedy character. Sort of best comedy character since Norman Gunston, I reckon. Look, when I was working at 2UE, I remember that everyone had their favourite Alan Jones impersonation. And they'd walk oh, yeah. down the hallway and be doing, yeah, what about the people on Struggle Street? You know, what about them? <laughs> When you're um, when you're researching, do you watch a lot of television? No, I make the interns do that <laughs> because, um, in, in fact, like I had to, like a couple of weeks ago, we were doing a piece on Sky News, and this guy, poor guy, um, Lachlan's his name. Uh, I I made him just watch Sky News for a week um, because you go, it's so awful. It makes I mean I don't know about you, but it makes me so anxious and angry when whenever I watch that stuff. And and not in the way that I think they intend. Like they want you to feel angry about you know welfare cheats ripping you off, or whatever. They're just angry that these people are allowed to lie so blatantly. You know, especially during COVID, where they they essentially were had a case line that, that was pro death. It was like, well, you know, Victoria's in lockdown. We believe that. Um, freedom's more important than people dying it doesn't matter you know, like and and you look where you know murdoch's influence is is more palpable like the us and and the uk and you know like 
they it was a pro-death position that sort of trumpian anti-expert position was it was just awful so yeah no i i, I don't watch tv i i mean I, the way i keep up to date with with my new services is i, I love twitter i mean I, it's a shit show but it's so <laughs> it's so it distills everything so well i think reddit is an amazing community builder although i must note that I think only men um, read Reddit. It's, it's extraordinarily skewed gender-wise. Um, and then I don't even touch Facebook. Do, do, do you have Facebook anymore? Does anyone? No. I, yeah. I, I, try and but stay the away numbers are. But the numbers are that that's where people predominantly get their their information. It's extraordinary its reach. Given I don't know anyone who who you know admits to using facebook anymore even though <laughs> yeah. you then go well hang on how come the only place i can sell tickets to a sh live show or something is through facebook like everyone uses it back off when you're actually uh doing research where's the best place to look uh well you gotta i i start on twitter because if you're up with twitter and you got you curate your feed you're often about two days ahead of a news cycle. Like you can sort of that and that combined with Reddit. If you subscribe to the right subreddits, I don't know. Do you use Reddit much? Not do at you? all. All oh, right. Yeah, it's a bit nerdy and weird, but um, there are some great communities who are just in the know about what's going on. So if you can find the right subreddit for whatever news is breaking. You sort of go, oh, you, you know, I'm an engineer on the Ever Given. Um, <laughs> ask me anything, you know, and then you, you find an interview with somebody who's literally there, you know, because I think Reddit now has about 300 million users a day or something like that. Really? So, yeah, and, and it does, you know, span the globe. So your chances of, you know, stumbling across an actual first-hand account that is credible and quite detailed is is immensely high. Like it, it's a really good way of understanding, you know, like having a deep dive into whatever's going on. Did yeah. Donald Trump change the news cycle and the way it's approached and monitored? Yeah, it's interesting. And one thing that happened immediately after Trump left was I, I don't know whether you found this, but um, that it slowed down the actual news cycle for you know like you weren't waking up going you know what's what's the gag this morning oh wait a minute by the afternoon um, it's a completely different story and there's a different thing like it, it was so chaotic the way he sort of just threw like I mean he was the first he invented the idea of cancelling out one scandal by by having an even bigger scandal you know, to cancel it out and then an even bigger scandal than that and and scott morrison actually started trying that in march where you know because he's had five shocking weeks in a row but he, he remember about halfway through christian the christian porter stuff had been dragging on for about 10 days and so and it was reaching the Friday and he clearly wanted to sort of change the topic of conversation. So he brought forward 
the results of the aged care royal commission, which were damning. Like it was a total <laughs> shit show. And he went, "Oh no, look at this over here. Look at this scandal that we've overseen." <laughs> Just to try and get rid of Christian Porter off the front pages. Like it's extraordinary. The other thing that's really changed about the media cycle very recently, like I would say in the last year, is that Friday afternoon used to be when you put out the garbage and <laughs> and you hit, you hid things on Friday afternoon. And now if you want something to really um, stick around for three or four days and actually seep into people's consciousness, you put it out on Friday afternoon and because all the newsrooms are defunded and everything like that, it suddenly becomes the story on Friday night, Saturday night and Sunday night. And, and it's only when people start, you know, on Monday morning that any other news happens. So, uh, and I've noticed that they've stopped trying to hide things and they start actually putting big news announcements on Friday afternoons now. So, you know, it's, I mean, there's, and I th I'm sure that social media, like even our, our internal like traffic numbers are now, I mean, there used to be a huge drop-off at about 4 p.m., 5 p.m. on Fridays, and then they wouldn't pick up until Monday. And now there is, there's always a drop-off. Like we, we have a huge Friday always. It's always our biggest day. People are relaxing and sort of thing. And then by about 4 p.m., 5 p.m., people are obviously getting pissed. They stop <laughs> looking at their phones so much, and our traffic goes down. But then now what happens is by about 7 or 8, people are obviously getting home from the pub, whatever, and logging back on, which which didn't happen before the pandemic. I, d I don't know quite what's happened. And then and then we always have a huge Friday night, which never used to happen. So I think people are replacing movies and TV with with online browsing and stuff or, or something like that. And and news is part of that mix. Sort of interesting. Do you worry about traffic? Do you worry about numbers? Um, not. Not um, not day to day at all. Like I used to. Like I reckon a couple of years ago, when our business model was less robust, um, yeah, it, you know, you'd sort of you'd really want to drive that traffic to to make up ad numbers. But but our ad numbers, I mean, our ad revenue has been falling as a proportion of our revenue for years, and it's sort of now almost immaterial. And so it doesn't actually matter. It's more about <clears throat> engagement. And, and, and I think what we're focusing on is, of course, you want jokes to go viral and things like that, but you also just want to be in the moment of the joke, like to be really hyper-topical and to be there as a story is breaking and unfolding and to be doing the jokes in real time. I think that's a more satisfying model and it also means you get more credit for it because you sort of um you're coming up with the gags as as the whole stories are breaking like it's just a cleverer model um and that means that actually there's sort of now two shifts on our in our newsroom which is i because i'm old <laughs> and have kids and i i tend to do the day shift you know like where get up and commission a few stories and get them out during the day and then Cam, who's the official editor of The Chaser now, um, essentially, because he's young and um, has the weirdest hours in the world, um, tends to do a sort of night shift where he'll 
he'll go right into the night telling jokes <laughs> and it's it's just great to see you know so it's like we, we sort of almost got an 18 hour um a day newsroom happening which is great i couldn't get over the fact that you even found humor in the suez um the boat controversy the- when it got stuck in there Stopping the boats. Is- <laughs> the, the fact that I, I just went, wow, you guys are, are on the ball. <laughs> well, but that, that was the funniest story of the year. Was I loved that story. <laughs> I, that was the best story because it, it was so simple as well. <laughs> and I, I don't know whether you saw all the Ma- Matthew Bevan, who uh, is on RN. Did you see? Do you see him on Twitter? Because <laughs> he was just going. I just think you should just push it. <laughs> you should push it on this side. And, I, and it was wonderful because, you know, like you just look at it and you go, oh, surely that's fairly. And it doesn't even look that stuck. <laughs> you know? But then you sort of, but then there's this education in, oh, my God, this, this boat is 400 metres long. Like this is, this is a, like, like I sort of didn't even know that global capitalism was so, so immense <laughs> so so um yeah no it was it was a perfect and then of course it totally fitted in with scott morrison's woes and everything like that like it was a perfect metaphor in a way as well ah oh, it was now also um some of the ones that i've looked at recently uh the royals are giving you plenty of fodder at the moment mm. and they continue yes. to do what's your favorite part of the royal whole experience well, my favourite, probably my favourite headline of all time in The Chaser was when the Queen Mum died. And um, I, I think she was 101 or something. Remember, she was very old. And and we ran with this lovely commemorative cover that was, and it read, <laughs> A Life Cut Tragically Short. <laughs> <laughs> because you're having a lot of fun with Prince Philip at the moment as well. Oh, yes. What a what a character. And the good thing is he's a proper enemy. You're allowed to take the piss out of him because not only is he rich and entitled and everything, he's also hilariously racist. And so even though he, he is a little old, and, and it is true, Cam, there, there were a few gags that Cam, because Cam, even though uh, Cam is sort of half my age, he's twice as sensible as me. And... <laughs> There are a few gags where Cam went, no, we're not running that. That's too making fun of death or whatever. You know, so we don't we, we don't think it's funny that people die, but but um, but I don't think he is going to die. He's a royal. He's, he's got a, at least another. Have you seen him? He looks he, he looks the full picture of health. I think he's got another twenty years left in him. <laughs> <laughs> he's probably just there, sitting there going, "Kill me now, kill me." Now he's still still making it. So let's get back to um, the early days with uh, the studying arts and political science. What mm. took you down that road? You're obviously were a big fan of comedy. Why politics? Yeah, so I think well, my my parents were always quite political. I, um, we, you know, went on peace marches and stuff like that when I was young, and I, I always loved. You know, I always just thought it was so sensible that you know you shouldn't have nuclear bombs and you should have peace, and I thought that was a it was such a beautiful movement and it was such a great community because it was, it wasn't just, 
Um, because we had some huge rallies in Sydney when I was young, uh, with the peace movement, and it was such a joyous time because you go on these rallies and you'd see like half your teachers would turn up and. Uh, you know, like it was a real community event, and you know, we we were involved in you know various churches back then, and all the churches would turn up, and like it was it it wasn't this sort of nasty you know ranty protest. It was sort of a cultural thing as much as anything, and then and then you'd sit in um, at the domain and there'd be lots of music and lots of great food from all around the world. It was just such a joyous sort of thing. So I think that sort of utopian politics just gave me joy. And then, and then I, th- I just think it's really important. We're, we're so rich and we're so privileged in this country. And I am so privileged as a person, like I'm a white man, um, that it's, I sort of feel it's like our responsibility to leave the earth better than when we got it. Like, we should be we have a responsibility to use all the privilege that we have to make the world a better place so and and the way to do that is through politics and and i think and to think deeply about what politics is it's not just you know electoral politics it's about in fact i would say that exists at the end of the process it's more about convincing people and and laying seeds of doubt in in the powerful and the rich and stuff like that and and actually sort of undermining the the powerful and and giving voice to the dispossessed all that sort of stuff um i think comedy is a perfect place for that to exist so um i think that's the i, I don't know how far we've got but i i kind of feel like you know the comedy stuff allowed me to master the craft and now you know we've got this other website that we've started called the shot it's only been going for about nine months, but it's got a more political and more, it's just commentary really, um, more serious bend. And, and just actually, you know, I, I sort of feel like the sort of sharpness that I learned in comedy is, is equally applicable to serious commentary. Um, because actually if you keep your audience entertained and, you know, you actually apply genuine craft to it. You can really make a potent point about things and actually have political influence. So uh, that's the theory, anyway. How difficult is it to always be coming up with funny lines and comedy and, yeah, basically being a satirist? I reckon I used to find it a lot harder than I do now, and I reckon... Part of the reason is because now it's more just about making yourself laugh and like I, 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 it's more, I mean, we've got more people in the office nowadays, so maybe that makes it easier, but it's actually a lot of the time it's just how do you make the rest of the people in the office laugh? Oh, that's the gag. Okay, great. You know, like, um, and, and the method that we've always had to sort of work out how to, um, make things funny if you're sort of struggling to for an idea is to sort of ask yourself well what what is actually the point what is the essential outrage of what's going on and there's always comedy in that because if something's outrageous or if you can actually identify the thing that's really bugging you and making you angry then there's that's an emotional response you can actually find the comedy in that in that moment 
So I think it's, I think a lot of it, I mean, comedy is entirely about trial and error. Like I can't tell you, like our best writer at the moment is this guy called John Delmenico. And, you know, he will pitch 12, 14 articles a day and we'll run two or three, you know, 14 ideas, you know, they didn't write them all up, but you know, the rate that is the right ratio one or two out of 14, 15 ideas, um, means that, you know, because actually, you know, you're better off having 10 terrible ideas, but actually having 10 ideas than, you know, like the worst thing for comedy is to sort of tighten up your brain and, and not allow yourself to think laterally and widely because it's always the 11th idea that's, that's better <laughs> than the other 10, you know. So what do you prefer, sort of what you're doing now with a web-based uh, format or television or that sort of performance? Well, actually, um, I, I much prefer this. I, I prefer this, I'd say, with the caveat of I really do love doing video. And, I mean, that's why the War on 2020 project was such a wonderful project because it was online um, but involved, you know, shooting proper production value you know sketches with proper production values um i think what what this model allows is for so much more control you don't actually have to go back and ask some bureaucrat or some manager um permission to run a gag or you know like there's no you know we're in charge and we we can push the boundaries so much further than than we otherwise would be able to that said um, you know, the actual, the joy of, of video production and, and television production is, is wonderful. Um, and I, I remain hopeful that like Screen Australia are extremely generous in the way they, cause we originally had a television partner for that project and they ended up sort of suggesting that maybe it, it would be better as an online only production. And I think it was, I think it actually, I think we reached more people. We, we reached over 11 million people with those sketches. And you just go, that's figures that no television station can ever achieve. Like, and you know, whacking, you know, like putting it into some, you know, TV networks, um, straight jacket of how they distribute actually would have just destroyed that project. So, what I'm hopeful about is being able to sort of keep it in this digital realm, but actually, you know, start doing proper long form video projects, but, but, you know, not necessarily using conventional networks to distribute. Although I would say, I think they can be, they can act as residual networks. Like almost it's the opposite model to what exists today, which is, I think, Every project that I do going forward will be online first. And then, you know, if we can fob it off on to some television network, that's great. Um, that's just the that cream. They can, have, they can have the second run. Yeah, they can have the second run at it. That's to get reach for old people who, who don't have the internet or something. <laughs> do you think, though, that uh, television is dying, though, as, as a medium because the internet is taking over as you say 11 million people it's not it's not dying Te television stations are dying free to air television stations are dying like their business models are evaporating but television itself is is not dying at all we're actually watching more television than ever before 
Um, and that's because Netflix and Stan and, and Prime and all those ones um, are coming in over the top. And that's a really good thing. I think that's, that's an excellent thing for television. It means it's better funded. I think, you know, and, and I think, I mean, I think the free-to-air businesses are like any Australian capitalists where they'll just end up legislating that <laughs> that they have to have a role in all this anyway. But um, it, 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 the pity is that, you know, because ABC iView is actually, I think, still the number one streaming service in Australia. Or at least it was 12 months ago. Maybe Netflix is more now. But, you know, until very recently, iView had this, you know, 10-year head start on everywhere else. It was an extraordinarily good service, but it was so underfunded. I mean, I remember being in there a few years ago and they were saying, oh, well, we're not going to go to HD um, yet. <laughs> and I go, why not? You put everything on HD, you idiots. Like everyone, that's what people want, right? And they're going, oh, yeah, but the this, this cost of streaming is like millions of dollars, the actual bandwidth costs. Um cost too much and you're going oh my god oh this is so frustrating <laughs> like because they're so constrained by what they're allowed to do because they get so little money that they don't um they, they 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 really can't exploit the wonderful position that they had so let's just hope that there's a shift in the winds on on how the abc is viewed and and we can get some proper funding for it or or even you know you know, maybe maybe we do have to look at the ability for the ABC to go, okay, well, if you want to get HD, you can pay five bucks a month extra and and allowing it to have some independent revenue. Not that that would work, of course, because then the government would just cut their funding further anyway. So, you know. <laughs> so how did you guys get picked up by the ABC in the first place? Oh, they were idiots. They were... <laughs> no, no. Um, no, it was Andrew Denton. It was entirely Andrew Denton. So we, we'd we been publishing... <laughs> this is true. We'd pu- been publishing a newspaper for about 18 months, Chaser, and he sent us this postcard, um, this really lovely postcard saying, love your work, you know, call me if you ever want to do anything, like a project or something. And, and we went... Oh, that's a nice postcard. Oh, isn't that? He's a fan. Isn't that lovely? We'll file that away. And we didn't call him, right? <laughs> and then so several months later, he rang up and went, well, do you want to do a project or not? <laughs> it's like, oh, you wanted us to call you? Okay. Well, and so we sat down. We had these lovely chats in cafe just around the corner. And then he basically leveraged, to his credit, he, you know, the ABC wanted him to do an interview show and he went, well, I'll do an interview show, but you've got to put these young guns also on air and wow. give me a show and I'll do your interview show. So he literally used all his own credibility to and power in that space to get us up, which was just, it was the career, I mean, it was just such a wonderful career starter. And then, and then he really taught us how to do TV properly. So, you know, he, I mean, he's a tireless worker. Like, he's almost, like, grinds you to the <laughs> ground um, genius. But but actually, you know, that gave us this wonderful grounding in how to convert our very lengthy sort of undergraduate prose into something that actually, you know, could work on television. What was the biggest thing you learnt to convert it over? Tight is right. Denton was a very good teacher. Like he had all these rules. So tight is right is probably 
the key, especially television comedy thing, which is, you know, economy is the soul. Of, what is it? Brevity is the soul of wit is the Oscar Wilde way of saying it. But, you know, if you can shorten something, I mean, often on TV, brevity, you know, you don't even need any words. You can just convey it with a visual or a look or a glance or a harumph or whatever. Um, so that's good. The other ones are rule of three. You know, comedy works in threes. So, you know, you look for your premise, your advance, and then your twist. Um, and, you know, if if something is struggling um, to work when you're reading it um, off the page, it's probably because you haven't, like, you know, like if, if you know, if you've got four things, ideas, you know, actually being ruthless and cutting it down to three ideas or, you know, actually applying a rule of three relentlessly just makes it snap along so far, so much faster. What else? There are a few other things. They're, they're the two. Oh, and um, no, they, I mean, they're the two main ones um, that, he, that he taught us. That He just drummed into us relentlessly. And so we went from, we could barely write a script to begin with. Like none of us had properly written television before. But by by the end, we, by the time he went off and we went our separate ways, um, we were proper television writers. It was fantastic. Did you realise the opportunity that you had when it came up? No, I think we... Oh, no, I think we realised that it was a great opportunity. I think we probably um, were also unbelievably annoying and arrogant about it, like... I think we very quickly went. Well, this is our birthright, isn't it? Being on TV, <laughs> you know. So I can imagine. Like I think, although actually we've all remained fr- like, like it, all the crew, like the whole production staff from those early television shows. When I catch up with all the time and have beers and reminisce and everything. So I mean, maybe we weren't as maybe only some of us were arrogant. Who knows? <laughs> Do you have a favourite sketch from those days? Um, oh, I mean, every sketch. My favourite episode ever of any of our shows was this one. I think it was, uh, I mean, Craig did a lot of the work. I can't remember whether it was Craig's initial idea, but it was called Lunchgate. And actually, um, it was the first time that um, Andrew, Andrew and I pieced it together, I think, quite a lot although i think chris also had a huge hand in it as well we, but it was the it was cnn and N, it was the season two of cnn and N, and we'd started realizing that actually we could piece together a whole narrative arc um but within the format of a tv news show and so we just sourced at great expense um we we got these videos of car crashes and car chases in the us and we um, stitched together a narrative where we had this sort of half hour of you joining us live as, you know, um, as the chaser helicopter is, cha- you know, on a car chase, you know, tracking a car chase. And it, it was all just about this man who um, had left uh, his house without taking his lunch and and his wife was chasing after him to try and give him his lunch. And, that, and then it turned into this whole narrative... <laughs> But, but it was all done through a news sort of thing. And it was just it was just such a clever um, way to sort of parody all those news. For, it was pure parody. Um, 
uh, but it was sustained across half an hour. And of course, with all this sort of slapstick footage of these genuine <laughs> car crashes and things happening on the roads that we'd licensed, um, it just made, gave it this sort of, it just made it look like it was a real um, news show. It was amazing. Because my favourite uh, sketch that you guys had, of course, the Osama bin Laden. Oh, uh, yes. The apex stunt. Yes. That was brilliant. Absolutely yes. brilliant. How yes. did you come up with it in the first place? Well, actually, the person who came up with the idea was uh, a series producer, Andy Neal. Um, and uh, look, I think, it, um, it, and to be honest, I was in the US still at the time. So I, I was not privy to a lot of the conversations that, that happened. Um, but the, um, as I understand it, they, they knew, you know, they, they knew they wanted to do something big and they were sitting around and you do, you'd have these long meetings that lasted, you know, hours trying to figure out a good stunt idea and things like that. (laughs) And then, and then it just struck Andy at some point. And Andy is this genius He's originally from Queensland and he's, he did all the Denton shows in the 1990s. And he actually, he was the guy, he was the head of Triple J when it was Double J and then he converted it into Triple J and took it national and things like that. It was extraordinary. He's a sort of legend of the industry. And he, he just said, hang on, how about if we, you know, pretended to be part of the motorcade? sourced the limousine and went through and it was like that's it that is it and then and then it was like and we can get Chaz shot by dressing him up as a something line yes that's it. So, <laughs> so they, they were two it was two separate ideas that sort of came together in that one meeting that was good were they surprised how far it went yeah yeah well it was a mistake like um they they, they had intended to turn back before that but then the, it was the police who, because the day before there'd been some holdup, and so the police were under instructions to just wave through any obvious motorcade <laughs> people, and so so they got waved through without any credential checking, <laughs> which is actually it was, so it led to this thing where they were deep in the heart of the illegal zone <laughs> before they just went, oh shit, we're gonna turn around. So that's when they got out. And, um, okay, so just just to um, to wrap things up then, so. Where to from here then? Uh, oh, look, I've got, I've got huge plans. I, I've got, there's a couple of TV ideas or video ideas is what I'd call them um, that I'm testing out. And, and one of the, my realisations is actually when you've got a newsroom like The Chasers, we don't necessarily need to attach it to a TV show. We can actually build up the skills by releasing weekly videos. So that's what I want to do this year is start releasing weekly television production style videos. And then we might end up packaging it um, up into a TV show towards the end of this year or or maybe early next year. And then the other thing that I've always wanted to get into is narrative comedy. So um, watch this space on that because I've got a really good idea, but um, it's just a matter of um, that sort of style of production is very expensive so just got to work out how to finance it basically the chaser.com.au is your website and what else can you do with it you're really uh you're exploring boundaries as it is is there other 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 things that you want to do with it yeah so we're we're 
you know, we're in the process. This is all very off the record. Please don't tell anyone. But we are looking at setting up a couple of websites in the US um, and actually focusing, having a similar sort of chaser-style sensibility um, on a, an American satire sort of platform. So that that would be very interesting. And similarly with The Shot, which, which has become extremely successful, the sister publication, um, I think that there, we have global ambitions for that as well. So it'll be interesting. We, it's a really... A, in terms of the roadmap for what we're doing is, is the next 12 months is going to be very just watch this space i'd say watch be, this space because you've <laughs> uh, written the uh, the book the american hoax yes so are the americans ready for this sort of satire because you have a real understanding of the american market yeah look i, I think we do and I, I, there's some great people over in america who um I mean, there's there's a huge gap in the American market at the moment, which they call satirical. It's not quite what we would call. It sort of falls between what Chaser and The Shot are doing here, um, because Gawker <clears throat> was their big, what they would call satirical website, um, and it got sued into oblivion by one of the directors of Facebook, Peter Thiel, a few years ago, and that sent a chill through that style of commentary in the US. And so you don't really have something like the chaser over there. Um, so I, I'm, I, I think there's a huge gap. And yeah, sure, um, we may get sued into oblivion, but my God, that would be fun. <laughs> Look forward to hearing more from you. So thanks so much, Charles Firth. Thanks for joining us over the bonnet. Thanks, Mark. This podcast is brought to you by Gympie Central Medical Centre. GMED is your local medical practice in Gympie, specialising in quality family medical care. Are you always sick, ranging from acute medical issues to management of long-term chronic conditions? When you need to get better, even if you have complex health problems, get the diagnosis right with Gympie Central Medical Centre. Contact them in Gympie on 54811873 or you can find them at 35 Excelsior Road. The podcast is also brought to you by Gympie Foam and Rubber, your local store that specialises in foam cut to size. They've got all sorts of good stuff like upholstery and craft foam, even loose-fitting filling foam. The shop is packed with things like mattresses and pillows. They'll also help you get down and dirty with rubber flooring and mats, anti-fatigue matting, and they have industrial mats and rubber. Ah, not so squeezy. If they don't have it, Andrew will get it. Plus, for Over the Bonnet listeners, mention the show and ask for your discount and you'll receive 10% off the marked price. That's right, 10%. But that's only for Over the Bonnet listeners when you mention the show and you have to ask for your discount. We can't go without mentioning Luscious Licks, 100% fruit ice cream. You can find them at local markets and all sorts of events. They are a really delicious alternative to conventional ice cream. Plus, the good news is Luscious Licks is completely dairy-free, gluten-free, and with no added sugar because there's nothing added. And best of all, it's guilt-free because it's healthy and it tastes great. Look out for Luscious Licks in the pink marquee at a market or event near you. And finally, the show is brought to you by bepositive.com.au in Yandina. 
Bepositive.com.au is your one-stop shop for first-rate beekeeping supplies and raw honey. It doesn't matter if you're just a backyard beekeeping enthusiast, semi-professional apiarist, or just interested in bees. Check out Be Positive on the Sunshine Coast or on the net at bepositive.com.au for a wide range of beekeeping equipment and advice that's backed up by more than 20 years' experience. Be Positive also provide apiary services including swarm relocation, hive setups, and Steve is always ready to share a wealth of knowledge about proper beekeeping practices. To get started, check out the online shop at bepositive.com.au and they'll promptly ship orders Australia-wide.